You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. Hello, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. In our last episode, you heard part one of Pioneer Stock, a story by Craig Mangum about his attempt to discover the truth about the lives of his gay Mormon uncles, Larry and Brent. For most of the time Larry and Brent were alive, Craig was either too far away or too scared to talk to them about what it was like to try to be themselves in a religious community that shunned them. Now that they're both gone, Craig's been doing research on them for the last few years. And Craig sometimes describes that work as talking back and forth through spiritual tin cans. This week, in part two of Craig's story, we're going to hear about the lengths Craig was willing to go to, to tune in more directly to those flickering signals from the past. Here's Craig. When I graduated BYU, I moved to New York to pursue a career in graphic design. There are a lot of cliches attached to moving to New York, but the truth is that big cities are perfect for the recently post-Mormon. They give you freedom to explore. For me, being a New Yorker temporarily replaced being Mormon as my primary identity. For years, I worked long hours, I obsessed about my career, and I only wore black. But no matter what you replace it with, you don't just stop being Mormon. It's such a comprehensive system that it functions much more like an ethnicity than a set of religious beliefs. But since it's such a young religion, most people don't think about it that way. To outsiders, you stop being Mormon when you stop believing in Mormonism. I'd counter that yes, you can replace your thoughts, but not your blood. It just doesn't wash out that quickly. And every time I was asked where I went to college or where I had moved from, Mormonism would inevitably come up. Imagine if every time you met someone new, you had to talk about your ex. It kind of felt like that. I tried to relabel myself as ex-Mormon, post-Mormon, former Mormon, and even kept a joke on hand that I identified as a FOMO-HOMO, meaning former Mormon homosexual. If I really didn't want to explain, I'd just say, I was raised Mormon, but really wasn't that into it. I don't know how you can claim you weren't that into it when you spent two years proselytizing it door to door, but hey, we all tell ourselves stories in order to live, right? It's weird to be identified as ex-anything, because it doesn't say much about who you are or what you believe, but rather, what you are not. And yet... I often felt like that backstory was what people found most interesting about me, or at least what differentiated me from everyone else. I remember standing in a bar, performing my old missionary door-knocking approach to entertain my friends, feeling my once-fluent second tongue warbling around in my mouth like rocks. They'd laugh, which was better than having them look at me as though I'd just escaped Scientology in the trunk of a car. But my Mormon missionary drag left me feeling hollow, hyper-aware that I was not over it yet, and I was worried my friends could tell it too. 
There can be a pressure to heal fast, to move on quickly, sometimes from the outside, but often from yourself. You've already wasted time believing something that turned out not to be true for you. Why languish holding on to the past? It's surreal to be remembered and even fetishized for an experience you consider to be painful or abusive. It's even more confusing to admit that without that painful past, you might not be remembered at all. What do you do when the most interesting thing about you is also the most painful, the most unresolved? It was around this time that I started to write about my uncles. I had started doing storytelling shows, and I thought that maybe I could develop their stories into something I'd perform on stage. The writing began to feel like a kind of calling. I'm not sure what I said to myself at the time, but I think I hoped that by telling stories about them, maybe I'd be able to move on the way I thought I was supposed to. But as I sat down and tried to write, I realized I was only writing questions. I knew so little about their actual lives. But I knew where I could find the answers. My Grandma Orva. Grandma Orva has become a central character to this story in a way I could never have predicted when I started. As Uncle Brent's older sister, Uncle Larry's mother, and my grandma, she alone sits at the intersection of all three of our stories, having witnessed each of us walk our own path. I knew she'd have at least some of the answers I was looking for. And so, after seven years in New York, I left. And I moved to Utah, and I moved into my grandma's basement, which is exactly what I had envisioned for myself as a 30-year-old gay man. I hadn't actually told my grandma why I was moving. So on the day I arrived, I sat down next to her in her living room, opened my voice notes app, and started talking. I want to tell you what I in thinking about and why I'm interested in this, just so you have context to understand all of this. Okay. Um, so, I mean, growing up, I don't know like when I knew I was gay or when I figured that out, but I remember very distinctly hearing like... I told her the basic idea for the project, that I was going to interview her and other family members and try to learn about these men and understand their lives. This can be such a tense topic to chat about, and I don't know why it feels like that. I think it's probably me feeling it more than energy I'm getting from you or anything. Well, I don't feel, seriously, I don't feel that it should be tense. It is what it is, and it's life, and we've lived it, and what else can can I say? Yeah. From WALTFM and PRX, you're listening to Family Ghosts. Our story continues right after the break. Before we continue, I just want to say, I love my grandma, and I feel lucky that she would share her memories with me to help me understand the lives of my uncles. These memories were often painful and filled with stories of people who were just trying their best with what they knew at the time. I do not love my grandma because she is perfect but because she is human and she is mine. I would not have this story if it weren't for her. 
Every single morning that we lived together, I would come up from the basement to find her reading the Book of Mormon. She'd look at me and say, how many eggs this morning? I'd answer, and she'd make the same deliciously beige breakfast of sunny-side-up eggs, hash browns doused in Worcestershire sauce, and toast. She'd even go so far as to butter the toast for me, served with homemade raspberry jam. Food is her love language, and I can say from personal experience that the freshman 15 has nothing on the 25 pounds you gain when you move into your grandma's basement. For the first three weeks of my stay, we would watch The Crown on Netflix together, both of us major fans of any period drama. And very quickly, this closeness developed that I imagine was similar to what she had had with Larry and Brent before me. I like to joke that my devoutly Mormon grandma has always had a gay best friend. We just happen to be related. One night when I came home, my grandma had a small safe sitting on the couch waiting for me. It was the size of your average box from Amazon. The front of the safe had some buttons that felt vaguely similar to the keypad on the front of Darth Vader's uniform. It was made out of white plastic, and it looked old. She kind of sneak attacked me, so I didn't really have time to record. This was your Uncle Brent's, I remember her saying. As I said in the first episode, Uncle Brent was born in Blackfoot, Idaho in 1943. He was the youngest in his family, and as far as I knew, he had lived his life as a celibate, fully active, believing Mormon. When he died, my grandma got rid of most of his belongings, but had kept the safe. I hoped it would contain some clue about who he had been. She handed me the key, and I opened the safe. It contained a small stack of papers and letters, most in their original envelopes. There was also a small brown velvet purse. It held a pair of earrings, some Mexican pesos, and a thick gold wedding band. Brent would wear a lot of jewelry at home, my grandma explained, especially toward the end. He also sewed most of his own clothes, you know. I hadn't known. My mind flashed to an image of Uncle Brent hovering over his sewing machine, wearing a pair of simple yet dangly earrings. My immediate impulse was to make a joke. How did we ever think this man might not be gay? I set the earrings aside. The ring was a simple gold band a little over a quarter of an inch thick. I slipped it on my ring finger first, but felt weird about the idea of symbolically marrying my dead great uncle. You can keep that if you want my grandma said. I instantly wrote a story about the ring in my head. Was it for a boyfriend we didn't know about, an unrequited love, a broken heart? My grandma provided context that unraveled my story. I think he wore it so people would assume he was married or a widow. My heart broke for Brent as I mentally replaced my love story with a scene of him on the day he walked into a jewelry store and bought himself a wedding ring. Did he lie to the employee who had helped him? Or did he tell the truth? He was purchasing a prop, a disguise that would help him fit in with his fellow congregants when he sat on the pew each Sunday. The ring, though beautiful, became a symbol of Brent's willingness to hide his truth in order to belong. I kept it, and I wear it often, a heavy, golden reminder that I will not hide the way he had to. The documents in the safe ended up being the most useful items to understand Brent. Some things I expected. 
his birth certificate, a final report card from high school, his call to serve as a Mormon missionary, his patriarchal blessing. But the vault also held a surprising number of responses to letters he'd written to general authorities of the LDS Church. One of the earliest was a handwritten response from Joseph Fielding Smith, the prophet of the LDS Church from 1970 to 1972. Brent had written to ask why, if the sacred Mormon undergarment was so important, did he often see people breaking the rules about when and how it should be worn. This is the Mormon equivalent of emailing Bill Gates to ask why your email isn't working. In his scribbled reply written in red ink at the bottom of Brent's original letter, the prophet chastised Brent for asking such a silly question and invited him to read an Old Testament story of King Solomon. LDS church hierarchy has become much more corporate since the time this letter was written. So to read such a strong rebuke, scribbled in the prophet's own hand, feels otherworldly. Other letters sent much later in Brent's life are different, like one responding to suggestions Brent had given about the experience of single people in the church. They acknowledge having received Brent's letters, but there's no talk of actual implementation or any desire to hear more. Prophets aren't really known for taking outside advice. Later that night, I read the rest of the letters in my room down in my grandma's basement. I ordered them chronologically, hoping they'd help me better understand Brent. The most interesting letter was from Brent's mother, my great-grandma Genevieve, who I never met. The letter is postmarked the 7th of September, 1976. Brent would have been 33 years old when he received it, about the same age I am now. It is handwritten across nine ruled pages. The letter begins with general updates about Brent's hometown, their local congregation in Blackfoot, Idaho, and news about students who miss Brent's piano classes. But then the letter takes a turn. Genevieve writes, Now, Brent, I have been really worried about you. I've had some terrible dreams. Snakes, deep, muddy water, all kinds of terrible things. My mother used to tell us they meant trouble. I'll never forget the look on your face the morning you refused to say the blessing. I believe Satan was there, if you remember. I faltered and stumbled when I was saying it. You look so old and haggard. The muscles on your face. They stood out so large and hard. I shall never forget how you looked. I can't get it out of my mind. Brent, you have refused to do a lot of things I know you know are right. Like refusing the sacrament, going to temple, saying your prayers, maybe more I don't even know about. Five or six years or more is long enough to deprive you of the blessings of the Lord, and it's about time you faced about and got a hold of the iron rod. The letter is signed simply, Mother. Brent's mother is calling him to repent. But for what? My grandma didn't know what Genevieve was referring to when she wrote about the morning Brent refused to say the blessing. But I have a guess. In Mormonism, the ability to perform certain rituals, such as blessing the sacrament or blessing another person, are contingent on the worthiness of the person giving the blessing. If you commit a sin, you're no longer worthy to perform a blessing, and thus it would be appropriate to refuse if you're asked. I imagine Genevieve is reminding Brent of a morning where she, through his refusal to perform a blessing, discovered that her son was unworthy. 
Mormon folklore is filled with stories of how our righteousness supposedly causes our skin to glow with happiness. Thus, describing Brent as old and haggard, with muscles that were large and hard, plays into this mythology. Sin, according to Genevieve, can distort us, causing our outsides to reflect the spiritual ugliness within. I try to imagine how I would feel if I got this letter from my own mother, imploring me to keep morally clean and repent of my sins. I wonder what had Brent not told his family? Who was he in the midst of becoming when this letter arrived at his door? Who might he have been had he never received it at all? I find it heartbreaking that Genevieve's only vocabulary for expressing concern for her son was to tell him to repent almost as though Mormonism had co-opted her motherly instincts. They feel like strangers to one another. And beneath her words, I can't help but sense an awareness that she knows her son is gay. While we'll never know what was going on in Brent's life when he received the letter, it clearly impacted him, seeing as he saved it among the correspondence he had with prophets in a safe he kept until the end of his life. I hope he had at least some years where he loved and was loved as his authentic self. But his mother's words had power, and they called him back to the fold. Which explains the largest collection of letters, written by a man named Kent. While I only have Kent's replies to Brent's letters, it is clear that he had served as Brent's ecclesiastical leader at some point. In Mormonism, repentance of serious sins is a process, often involving one-on-one interviews with religious leaders. I assume that Kent was involved in Brent's repentance process because their correspondence includes a lot of discussion about the gay liberation movement, gossip about various mutual friends whose children have gotten, quote, caught up in it, and vague references about enduring to the end and the blessings of remaining faithful. At one point, Kent sends a photocopy of a book cover called The Homosexual Dilemma and encourages Brent to read it. Reading these letters as a gay man in 2022, I was struck at how outdated their language felt, but I want to offer them some grace as they never thought these letters would be read publicly, let alone this many years later. At very least, these letters show that Brent was open about his sexuality with at least some of his religious leaders. Later, my grandma gave me a binder of notes and printouts of emails that had been sent following Brent's death. Many of these notes included email addresses, so I reached out to the people who had sent them, asking if they'd be willing to share any memories they had of Brent. I did not explain my background or justify my interest in his life because I wanted to hear their uncensored thoughts. Mormons have a tendency to circle the wagons and revert to a script when worried their comments might be taken out of context. I received a few replies, all laced with the sort of love and adoration that follows the news of someone's death. But I noticed that many felt the need to explain to me why Brent had never married. One responder said, quote, He had lived alone for so many years. He had established his way of living and doing things, and I think he feared he would lose that. Whatever you need to tell yourself, I guess. Another was more explicit. Quote, Brent worried about his status in the eternities, not having married in this life. 
We talked about it from time to time, but he was pretty well resigned to his lot in this life and the other, knowing of Heavenly Father's great love for all his children. I am sure he qualified for the celestial kingdom, but perhaps not exaltation. He basically understood he would be a ministering angel, an eternal destiny that I know he would love. The responses said so little about Brent and so much more about the people commenting on his life. I was thrust back to the sacrament pew where I'd spent hours trying to discern the LDS Church's murky take on the eternal destiny of queer people. Ministering angels? Floating around heaven? Perpetually doting on deified heterosexuals? It was a hard pass for me. Finally, one person agreed to talk to me on the phone about Brent. Okay, Kathleen, can you hear me? I can. Kathleen was Brent's neighbor. They attended the same LDS congregation in downtown Salt Lake City. She told me about my great uncle from a perspective outside the family stories I had heard. He loved breads. He would make bread often and sweets. He liked sweets. He enjoyed going to concerts. He'd crochet quilts. He apparently wore a lot of jewelry, earrings, rings, necklaces. Most of her memories were of the service Brent gave as a home teacher, an assigned visitor who cared for other people in his congregation. Brent was assigned to be a home teacher to women whose husbands had either left them or died. But he would take them to the grocery store and to the bank and the post office. He was very generous with his time and willing to help them. And he would make things for the families that he taught. He was very kind. After sharing these memories, Kathleen stopped. Could you turn off the recording for just a minute and let me ask you something? I paused, sensing what Kathleen might be getting at. I'll go ahead and say it. Okay. I, I thought Brent was gay when I first met him. I appreciated Kathleen's desire not to out my uncle, but couldn't help but laugh as I told her. You're not surprising <laughs> us on that one, on me anyway. With that established, Kathleen agreed to let me leave the recorder running. She went on to tell me about a talk she remembered that Brent had given in church to his entire congregation. During his talk, he told all about this man that was having these problems, but how hard it was for the man to live this different life. The man told the bishop, I don't think I can do this. And the bishop got up, walked over to the wall and slammed his hand on the wall and then yelled at the man for giving up, for not being able to change. I wondered if this bishop was Kent from the letters in the safe. I never learned the bishop's name. I never heard it. Brent would not tell me. But... The man worked here in Salt Lake, and Brent would often go and visit him and talk with him and counsel with him. I checked the letters Brent had saved. 
Each letter from Kent had been sent from a downtown Salt Lake City address. I have to imagine that Kent was the bishop Brent was talking about. And both I and Kathleen believed the friend in Brent's story was actually Brent himself. He told a story, which I believe was his life story, that he tried to make it sound like it was someone else and had been given permission to give this information about this person. When I heard this, I was honestly impressed by Uncle Brent. In my mind, I had cast him as a really pathetic character, filled with shame. But to imagine him standing at a pulpit, sharing his experience with his congregation, even under a pseudonym, made me see that there was more to his story. I do believe that Brent wanted a male husband uh, or companion in the next world, and he sort of believed that he would be able to have a male companion in the next life. This was very different from what I'd been told in the emails I'd received about Brent's expectation to live as a ministering angel. To say that he believed he'd be partnered with a man in the next life means that Brent did not view his homosexuality as a trial of the flesh, subject to this life only. Instead, he viewed it as part of his eternal soul, his spiritual DNA, a trait that would stick with him over the course of this life and the next. Yeah, I don't think he was ashamed of himself. I think people tried to shame him. I think he accepted himself for how he was. I do not know when Brent began to believe this, but I am honestly happy for him that he did. Kathleen, however, was not. I didn't want him to have a male companion. Um, I thought he was quite good looking. He was single. I have never been married. I really did love Brent. I really did. I had such a crush on him. (laughs) I thought the world of him and... um, But I also knew that he was not going to change. Kathleen's stories of Brent confirmed some of my thoughts about him, but also challenged others. Remember that ring I thought was a prop? Turns out there were multiple times Brent almost got married. He had a couple of women that he had really loved and would have married. Earlier on in his life, seemed like in maybe his 20s, early 30s, he had wanted to marry this person, a, a woman. When I asked my grandma about Brent, she told a similar story. He bought her a ring and asked her to marry him, and she said yes. But I'm not sure just what happened, because they decided not to marry. And uh, from then on, it was just kind of downhill with his life. As I sorted through these stories, I was overwhelmed at just how contradictory so much of Brent seemed to be. As far as I can tell, Brent was a lot of things. He was a man who proposed marriage to multiple women and also came to believe he may have a male husband in heaven. All of the stories I received, 
all of these inputs are just part of the myth of Brent that I have created. And this myth is incredibly inconsistent, which paradoxically makes it feel like it just might be something close to true. But the part of Brent that everyone seems to agree on, he could be really mean. Kathleen, the neighbor, described him as cantankerous, and a lot of people did not like him. There were a lot of times I called him an unreal pot because he was. This confirmed a lot of my own memories of Brent. In the first episode of this series, I told you about my memory of him chastising my grandma for her thirsty roses. One year, while I was a student at BYU, I took Brent and my grandma to see a production of Sunset Boulevard up at the University of Utah. I was certain this was something we could all get behind. As we left the theater, Brent hinted that he thought the lead had overdone the performance a bit. But by the time we were at the car, he had declared it one of the worst productions he had ever seen. The critiques, though not aimed at me at all, still felt personal. He was exhausting. My grandma remembers him that way, too. He would tell me of conversations that he would have with the bishop, and he would tell me that he would tell them that they're not righteous and they're not this, or they're, you know, they're not doing things right. Or he would tell the organist they needed to put more emphasis and put some body into the organist instead of just sitting there playing notes. Brent's critiques weren't limited to his congregation. The hurt ran even deeper, including a story my grandma shared about Brent's disapproval of her marriage to my grandpa, Jim. Especially after I'd married Jim, he really didn't want to have anything to do with me. Uh, He called me some names. I'm not going to repeat them. But he did call me some pretty nasty names and told me that I wasn't fit to be alive. I was not fit to be a member of their family. And uh, that was okay. I, I, now it is. At that time, it kind of it hurt. It hurt really bad. But, you know, you have to get over some of those things because if you're caring for all your life, all I do is wear you down. I've thought a lot about Brent's meanness. To me, it feels too easy to say Brent was mean. It's too easy to cast him as just a bitchy old gay man. Instead... I want to cast him as a victim. Living in the closet often requires the creation of an inner bully to keep you in line. It's an unrelenting voice in your head that constantly reminds you how horrible you are, what will happen if you ever come out, of all the ways you stand to disappoint those you love. And when you believe that that voice aligns with the will of God, the condemnation becomes even more severe. More often than not, This inner critic is focused on the self like the eye of Sauron from The Lord of the Rings. But when provoked or triggered or threatened, the eye can shift and eviscerate anyone in its path. I think something like this may have happened to Brent. If we all heard the meanness in his voice projected outward, imagine what it must have been like to live day after day with that voice inside his own head. I do not believe Brent could live the life he wanted to live, but instead experienced a life deferred. And a life deferred inevitably leads to acting out in ways designed to numb the pain. I believe his meanness, his sense of superiority, were all just masks employed to cover a deep well of sadness and unworthiness. 
They served the same function as Uncle Larry's addiction, which we'll talk about in the next episode. And so, I add this to the list of Brent's contradictions. He was a hurt person who hurt people. That doesn't make what he said okay, but it does make it make sense. In my senior year at BYU, I had to take a photography class to graduate. For the final project, I decided to take a series of portraits of people whose lives had, in some way, dealt with being LGBTQ and Mormon. The subject sounds risky for BYU, but I was an art student and it was my last semester and I honestly didn't really care anymore. I took a picture of a friend who was losing her faith because of LDS treatment of queer people. Another who had had a family member who was transitioning. A male student who was gay and consistently painted a single pinky fingernail in a small act of defiance against the BYU honor code. And I took a portrait of Brent. I didn't tell him the real angle of the assignment. I lied and told him it was just a general portrait project. I told him I wanted to take a picture of him doing whatever made him the happiest. When I arrived, he was outside his apartment, dressed in his Sunday best. This is how I choose to remember Brent. A freshly pressed white shirt, one he most likely sewed himself. A dark tie, a suit coat, a smile and an eagerness to help despite not knowing what heaven that helpfulness would get him in the end. I choose not to remember how cruel he could be, but instead, I see him as an example of faith. He stayed in a religion that never saw him as a true equal. He believed in it. And that boggles my mind. He gave up love for that belief. He gave up companionship. And I have to imagine that whenever he chastised a bishop or criticized an organist, he did it because he knew how much he was sacrificing to be there, and he could not stand seeing others give any less. This is the lesson that Brent transmits to me across the generations. Belonging always comes with a cost. What are you willing to pay? I no longer have the faith that Brent had in the LDS church, and I'm ultimately indifferent to what happens to that institution. But I hope they remember that men like Brent are sitting in their pews, hearing their sermons, sacrificing themselves to shoulder the burden of their teachings. I hope they offer them more than the promise of being an angelic helper in heaven. I hope that the church will prove to be worthy of men like Brent, of the sacrifice of a life deferred or, like my Uncle Larry, of life itself. That's next time on the finale of Pioneer Stock. Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. 
Pioneer Stock is written and told by Craig Mangum. Special thanks this week to Zach Stafford and to Adrian Bain, who played the role of Genevieve. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Luis Guerra. We used incidental music from Blue Dot Sessions. Family Ghosts is made possible by the generous support of the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits get access to a special Family Ghosts feed, where all the episodes are available ad-free, and where we release exclusive bonus content that's not available anywhere else. We couldn't make Family Ghosts without the support of the Kindred Spirits. So if you have the means, please consider joining them today at patreon.com slash familyghosts. And if you don't have the means, no worries. Thank you for listening. Please consider supporting the show for free by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It will take 30 seconds of your life, and it will make a huge difference in the life of Family Ghosts. We'll be back in two weeks with the finale of Craig's story, right here on Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted.